This is the Bob Olin Show on KDAL. And away we go with the Bob Olin Show on the 18th of July. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning. It's a beautiful morning in the Northland. And uh, I'll tell you, that forecast was music to my ears. It'll rain tomorrow, hopefully. We could sure use a little, particularly in some places, for sure. Yeah, at the airport, we are officially 2.12 inches below the normal for this time of year. Yeah, is that unusual? We came mm-hmm. from the record uh, snowfall, and you might right. expect that something would change to quite dry conditions. Some people aren't feeling it. Some people had some of these spotty uh, downpours where right. I heard tales of three, four, five, six inches. Wow. And uh, others have been very, very dry. So it's... Uh, it's quite variable, but I think uh, sounds like for your forecast, this is going to be across the region, Dave, over in Wisconsin as well. So that's uh, that's good news for the month of July, actually. There you go. Hey, Bob, let's start out with a question early this morning. Hi, who's this? Hi, it's Gary from Kenwood. Go ahead. Hi, Hi Gary. Got a question on apple tree. I have a Harrison that's been, that's been in the ground about eight years here at the house, 15 feet tall. Okay. Okay, maybe four or five foot branches on it, four or five inch trunk. It's quite healthy. Um, I am having an absolute bumper crop of apples this year, and I want to know how many apples I should remove or how many I should leave on the tree to protect the tree and and the crop. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, It's interesting because Harrelson, and I've got a couple myself, this year they are producing a tremendous crop. And even we just talked about the dry conditions, but we had so much of that winter snow that did get down into the soil profile, so there's plenty of moisture to support that crop. Dave, we'll talk about it a little later. Has a Harrelson that's taking the year off, I guess, huh, Dave? you got to feed him a little better. Yeah, mine is uh, just finally taking the year off after about five or six years of nothing but apples. I know. It's such a such a productive tree, and Dave was always so great. He'd bring in... Uh, basket after basket of uh, apples just to give away in the uh, at the studio there. But back to your question, yeah, that fruit load is going to be too heavy uh, for that Harrelson. So the tree will naturally shed some, but you're going to want to take off more. So the fruit itself is formed on what we call a fruit spur, and uh, that forms the blossom, a little bit unique tissue there. And uh, you want at a very minimum, you want to get down to one fruit per spur and oftentimes they're in clusters of three or four fruit just like with the with the blossoms when we've got good pollination and you know that's another nice thing about what you're you're telling us you've got good pollinating insects out there doing their job so that's that is reassuring you're going to drop at least down one per spur and actually uh, you might want to even get a little bit more aggressive than that the tree can support certainly one per spur but if you want to even the crop out a little bit, uh, if you uh, take more than that, and believe it or not, I did I did some work on that years ago and found that um, the trees can, uh, you can even the crop out by getting down to one fruit for every 20 leaves. Now, obviously, you're not going to count all the leaves on the tree, but if you count out 20, and you'll give, give you just a little idea how much fruit you want to you want to leave just uh, just a little bit. Usually we're going to take off more than one fruit per spur if we want to even the crop. So if we reduce the amount of fruit this year, there'll be more energy. That fruit is ripening in the late fall, particularly with Harrelson, right at the same time that we're going to be setting the flower buds for the next season. So if we have a real heavy crop one year uh, and all that energy 
goes into the fruit, and there's very little left over for the flower buds for next year, so we get a real light crop. That's what happened to Dave in this situation. He had a tremendous amount of fruit uh, last year. Wasn't enough energy left. Didn't drop any of the. He just harvested apples, which is fine. That's your choice. But um, this, this year he's going to be very light because of last year's heavy load. So if you want to even them out, uh, try to get down to one, one fruit per spur, and perhaps even a little bit more than that. Does that help? Okay. Uh, uh, okay. So I've got a five, four or five foot branch on the tree. How many? How many apples would I want? To, you know, maximum number of apples on that length branch. Well, you know, again, you're going to go in and you're going to look at that branch right there, and you'll see where the where the fruit is emerging from the branch. They're a rather distinctive spur, rather than a vegetative branch. They come off from a portion of that limb. And if you take a close look, you'll see they'll be in clusters along that limb. So just work your way along the limb and, and get down to one fruit, one standalone fruit rather than a cluster of fruit. Mm-hmm. So I can't tell you exactly every every tree is going to be a little different. Every branch is going to be a little different in terms of where that fruit spur is. So I, you're going to kind of have to determine what works best uh, for your tree. But you are definitely going to be thinning. A lot of people oh. don't thin. And that can result in two things. It can be such a heavy fruit load that you actually damage the tree because it structurally can't support that much weight. So we break the limbs and process probably. I'm sorry. I say, and and I probably wouldn't get a good crop if I leave too many on there either. That's correct. You're going to get small fruit, lots of fruit, but small fruit that doesn't really develop like you'd like. So we get structural damage. We get uh, a smaller uh, fruit size. And then uh, we're going to actually be stealing from next year's crop as well. So definitely going to thin. You're going to just take a look at that branch, and you'll see where they come off in clusters, and you're going to remove the – there's a cluster of maybe three apples that's forming right now at this point. And the sooner you do this, the better. Uh, we want to get that extra, extra fruit off there. So if there are three in that cluster, you take off two and leave the one. So okay, it, well. uh, it works. it'll work out uh, just fine for you that way, I'm sure. Okay, well, thank you for the info. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for yeah, the call. Thanks now. for the call. It's a great, great question. Um, it is a little on the time-consuming side to go through all of those spurs and take the little apples off, but uh, it's worth it in the long it run. Is. Yeah. It, it is. Uh, there's a, like a lot of these endeavors, uh, mm-hmm. time-consuming. Commercially, they do it, but they do it chemically, and we uh. don't want to do that necessarily. <laughs> but they they get a spray on there that drops uh, oh. uh, a fair percentage of the fruit because uh, they want higher quality, larger fruit, and they want fruit every year if they're in the business commercially. So they do it chemically. We're not going to do that, of course. No. Uh, we're going to have to do it manually. But as you say, it's your choice. Um, right. Just do a few at least for maybe some of those real high-quality large apples that you want. So... At least what you can easily reach. You're not a larger tree. You're not going to do that throughout the tree. But uh, that's the best way for the homeowner to do it, Dave. All right. We'll take a break and be right back. More of the Bob Olin Show, 924 now at KDAL. And we are back with more of the Bob Olin Show. Bob, it's going to be easy for me to thin out the crop of apples this year. There aren't that many on there, so I can uh, pick and choose. You won't have that as an issue, for sure. No. I and you know, this is... Uh, Gardening can be management intent, depending on how you want to do it, or you can kind of just lay back and, and take her kind of easy, Dave. <laughs> and uh, your Harrelson, first you got to start with a tree, and I'm, boy, it's kind of nice for getting these Harrelson questions. You know, University of Minnesota introduction way back to the 20s, 
amazing with all the new introductions, Honeycrisp and uh, so many other new varieties that come from the University of Minnesota. And uh, we've got quite a national uh, apple breeding reputation. And people said, like when Honeycrisp came along, that, well, that's Andy Harrelson. Honeycrisp is a, uh, a tremendous apple, of course. But Harrelson has some advantages. It's a later apple. It's a little tart. Uh, it's so hardy. I've seen them way up in the Canada, which is uh, great. You can't say that for our Honeycrisp. Be very careful. If you're on tree, we still have a cold climate here in the winter. And uh, you got to be a little careful where you plant that. Uh, it will take off in a mild winter throughout, uh, actually throughout northern Minnesota, but then we get a tough winter and uh, and you lose them. So they don't really last. They were introduced to Zone 4, not Zone 3, and we have a lot of Zone 3 weather in our area. So Honeycrisp is great. But uh, I'll always recommend people want to put in two or three apples. And I'll start with uh, Harrelson. Let's get started there. Number one, winter hardiness, productivity, and that one's just a very good one. That's a real interesting history, Dave. Uh, it was named after Charles Harrelson, who was the original director of the University of Minnesota Fruit Breeding Station in Excelsior right around uh, 1907. Now, apples, of course, table-eating apples, were not native to Minnesota. Uh, we had a few uh, gnarly crabs that weren't uh, much of anything, and but they were hardy. I guess that's the only thing they had going for them. But they certainly were not uh, good eating apples. And when uh, right around the time of statehood, which was 1850, we had a lot of settlers that were moving into the area. Apples had a very unique role in their diet. It wasn't just the fact that uh, stored well through the winter. And with the abundance of food we have right now in our society and people concerned about too many calories, there was a question of how we're going to get through the winter. Uh, we're going to store a lot of cabbage and potatoes, but you can only eat so many cabbage and potatoes. Let's get a few apples in there. Apples uh, really did provide sugar. And once again, we've got so much sugar in our society. They lace it on just about all the processed foods one way or another. And uh, yet sugar was a very scarce commodity. Uh, of course, was valuable. Uh, as well, but we didn't have the uh, the large cane sugar production. We didn't have the sugar beet production. So sugar was a very valuable commodity, and apples provided sugar. Just so happens that nice and sweet, make pie of it out of them, but it also provided the sugar that went into cider, apple cider, as well as hard cider. So there were a lot of motivations for those settlers to bring apples with them. They came oftentimes from the East Coast. And a uh, much more temperate climate there, and they brought their own apple trees with them, an apple seed, more likely, but they um, they weren't winter hardy here. And when a gentleman by the name of Peter Didion, and it's one of the more remarkable stories uh, that I've heard way back, uh, he'd actually come in from Indiana, disappointed there weren't apples. He was an amateur horticulturist, but he, uh, he started really looking for apples that might be hardy, did a lot of crossing and brought in uh, apple stock from northern New York, actually, is where he brought a lot of his material back from. And he had to make a decision one winter, the story goes, I'd like to verify this, but it does make a very good story. Minnesota winters, uh, he had to decide between a new winter coat, which he did pretty badly, or purchasing uh, all of these uh, this apple seed from a couple of orchardists in upstate New York that might provide some potential for good winter hardy apples in Minnesota. He elected to buy the seed and wow. forego the coat. So he, he didn't freeze it at that winter. He survived till spring, so he was able to start uh, doing the selection process. So he did all these crosses, and you know the thing about selecting apples, 
you got to really wait until they come and they mature. They have to set in bloom before you get any pollen, before you get any fruit. So you really don't know if your cross works for another six, seven, eight years. So it's a long, time-consuming uh, process. But nonetheless, let's see, Minnesota statehood was 1858. Uh, he came in shortly after that, and actually, I believe he introduced uh, his first apple, which was the first table apple in Minnesota called the Wealthy, and that was in 1868 after after statehood. And that was kind of the start. He actually um, did eventually develop a career at the University of Minnesota, their fruit breeding station. And actually, it was the Minnesota, one of the first organized horticultural groups was the Minnesota Fruit Growers Association, which became the Minnesota Horticultural Society and ultimately backed by the state and then and I'll call it the state horticultural society and covers everything from ornamentals to edibles. But it all started with fruit, and it was all about uh, trying to get enough to eat and sugar. And uh, apples, again, had this very unique role because of the fact that they uh, they contained all this sugar and they would store well through the winter, a winter source of, of food for the early pioneers. It was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And started with the wealthy. That was uh, Peter Gideon never was wealthy man in his life. That was his wife's name. Wow. And bless his soul for putting up with uh, this kind of wild plant breeder that uh, valued the plants more than his own apparent safety and comfort during the winter. And uh, because of that, we have the wealthy. The remarkable thing, introduced 1868, it's still in the trade, right. put together a little trial orchard for a group of people, and I insisted that they get a wealthy. It wasn't hard for me to find. And uh, just so we we'd show people what the original, actually Minnesota, Wisconsin apple, it was right. the original one that uh, was winter hardy in the area. That was the wealthy. Your Harrelson, that was 1868. really didn't come along until the 20s wow. and was named after uh, Charles Harrelson, who was the director of the uh, fruit grower experiment station. And uh, for his commitment and the breeding work that he did to that effort, uh, they named the Harrelson after him. And remarkably, we're coming up on their 100-year anniversary of the Harrelson, not too far from now. And uh, both the Wealthy and the Harrelson have been with us for over 100 years. Both good varieties, both varieties people should try. They're, they are really fine apples. So all that effort that goes to plant breeding, when you find a good one, it can last a very, very long time. So I was pleased, uh, a caller there from Kenwood right. that uh, that has been real happy with his Harrelson, as I know you have. They're uh, pretty much trouble-free trees for sure. All right, Bob, let's head to the phones again. we got another call. Hi, who's this? <laughs> Hi, this is Crystal. Go ahead, Crystal. And... Uh, Bob, you've given me great advice before. I'm wondering if you can tell me if this will work for me. I am having a a terrible trouble with a cucumber beetle this year. Hmm. I have 11 beds of squash. Um, They're not bothering the acorn or the delicata, but they are um, on my butternut, buttercup, Hubbard's squash. So I'm wondering if oh, I geez. pull, all of those are mulch in leaves. So I'm wondering if I take all the plants and all the mulch and burn it and then plant it with cover crop, mm-hmm. if that will get rid of them. I do have cucumbers uh, growing maybe 300 yards away, and they don't seem to be bothering those. They're not on them at all. So if I burn yeah. all that mulch and cover it with cover crop, will that Boy, I'm trying to, um, I'd like to say, yes, get it off and burn it, but I can't guarantee you that. 
Uh, it's so interesting, your comments. They're not the cucumber beetles. They're not. Is this a stripe? They're a common striped cucumber beetle, I'm assuming. And, yeah, uh, right. you know, they're on they're on your squash and doing so much damage there. Um, you know, hot and dry. Where are you located? Have you had Fox a lot of rain? Or has it been, Wisconsin has been pretty dry for you, or have you had uh, lots of rain there? No, very because, dry. Yeah, this is what I'm experiencing, too, out in the field, where we've got insects like we never had before, and uh, you you point out some real interesting things where the cucumber beetle isn't on the cucumbers, it's on the squash and only some specific squash. I cannot give you a good explanation for that because I've had problems with other pests and they, they'll take one crop and they'll leave everything else alone and I'm not really sure what that difference is, particularly when you get in the squash family like that. But going back to your question, how are we going to control these? Can you... You know, they don't. None of these insects like moisture, and that's the reason we that we have two issues why we've had such difficult insect problems. Most of these spend part of their life cycle down in the soil. They were in the soil, and typically in the pupa form. When uh, that heavy blanket of snow came, there was no loss in the soil. They were they came through so comfortably. Oftentimes, they don't like warm, moist springs. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, some of these insects, grasshoppers, when we get rain and consistent rain, uh, it kills them off because there's actually a fungus that thrives in during wet conditions, and that's detrimental to the natural uh, population control for grasshoppers. I don't know what it is specifically for cucumber beetles, but there's something that controls that. I would say my thought would be, yes, they're probably inhabiting some of that, uh, some of that mulch, but I don't think that's going to cure the problem for you entirely. You might remove some. It's, it's helping conserve moisture, and it's uh, controlling some of your weeds. I would try two things. I would try overhead irrigation. They don't like it wet, so if you can do that, we generally don't. We like the water at the base, trickle drip, anything else. But in this case, I want to get that insect. I want to make them very uncomfortable. They don't like water, so I would try that in the morning at least when we can dry the plants down because we don't want to incur a disease situation with too much water. And then a real fine netting. If you can find a, a fine netting, go to a fabric store or anything else, try to get them and observe their behavior. Some of these insects are, are diurnal. In other words, they're very active during the day. They're inactive. So try to observe their behavior. If you don't see any activity in the evening, that would be the time that you'd want to drag this very fine netting over the top and try to exclude them because they'll get very active again uh, in the morning. So there are a few non-chemical uh, methods of control. We don't even have any real good over-the-counter uh, pesticides if you would elect to go that route because these insects have developed a lot of tolerance to some of the real common materials that are sold over-the-counter. So that's probably not going to be a, a good option. But trying to make them uncomfortable, maybe this rain, if we all get some of it, will help you out there. But I am seeing your situation. Personally, I'm experiencing on one of my garden plots uh, the very thing you are, uh, where it's hot and dry, I have a tremendous insect issue that I'm trying to control. And then uh, on other places where I've had some moisture, I don't have near the near the population pressure. So you're not alone. Let's make them uncomfortable with some overhead irrigation. And if you elect to a fabric store or someplace with a fine mesh netting, and uh, hopefully that uh, that certainly can help things. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. 
we got to take a break, Bob. It is uh, 940. We'll be right back. More of the Bob Olin Show here on KDAO. And we are back. More of the Bob Olin Show. Bob, we've got another caller this morning. Hi, who's this? Great. Dave, your transmitting is very poor this morning. Uh oh. Yeah, it's very staticky. Okay, good to hear. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was an easy question. <laughs> Apparently, we're a little <laughs> on the staticky side this morning. Okay. Maybe that's in our voice. I'm not really sure. Am I staticky? And hopefully uh, that'll get corrected. We'll have to see what's going on. But if you do have okay. issues, uh, you can always uh, catch us online, too, kdal610.com. We're static-free there and worldwide. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Yeah, I'm kind of amazed. You know, we, we have some of the insect issues, and I think, as I say, even if uh, our last caller wanted to use some of these materials, uh, they're not going to be very effective because... Oh. In, insects have uh, taken a lot of the world's food supply over the over the years, insect and disease, and uh, controlling them has been an issue. And, of course, commercially, a lot of the bigger farms have been using a lot of uh, chemical material, and the insects have just mutated and managed to adjust to that. So there are some real uh, real challenges that come along with that. That's the, that's, uh, the great thing about uh, having a garden out there. You begin to realize that that food supply, you walk into the supermarket, and it's... Uh, it's very, very abundant uh, just because you got a broker sitting at a computer screen, and he can get product anywhere from the world these days. Right. So if one farmer's having trouble or someone else that's uh, figured it out or doesn't have the issue, it's just like uh, her situation, hot and dry, real insect pressure. Maybe a neighbor five miles down the road, plenty of moisture, and not experiencing uh, anything like that. They, they could have the opposite, very little insect pressure, but disease pressure that comes from uh, the moisture that they've had. So... Everything is a little bit variable. You're not going to get every crop. We don't want people ever to get discouraged with this great hobby of gardening. You just have to sit back and and you have to take a look at uh, what is doing well this year and what is resisting if it's insect pressures on your cucumbers or, in her case, on her squash. I'm sure probably her broccoli and her cauliflower and her cabbage look uh, look great uh, under these conditions. So we take what uh, what the garden gives us and uh, we do the best we can to manage with it, Dave. Yeah, pretty amazing that these insects are so selective. They'll pick one squash over another. Yeah, it's real. That's real interesting. Uh, and I don't put that at all. I've I've observed <laughs> some of the similar things as I mentioned, and I have no real good explanation right. for it. You know, it's kind of interesting as we moved. I was I was thinking as we moved into uh, looking for organic controls. Uh, we had some organic controls. Uh, and some cabbage, the cabbage family were being selected for uh, insect resistance. So they, the insects didn't like some of these newer varieties. And as it turned out, because there was a concentration of some of these alkaloids, and uh, those aren't particularly nice compounds to have in anything either. So there, there was a reason why the insects didn't like it. And as I looked into some of those varieties, actually they've gone away. They've stopped that breeding program because they're concerned about uh, just how healthy that is for the human diet. When you take something that's uh, uh, really great for humans, like uh, the coal crops, the cabbage family, and we want to all eat more of those if we can, very, very beneficial. But if you're doing this selective breeding or, in some cases, genetic engineering to try to find something to discourage the insects, you can uh, do more harm than good sometimes. So it's, uh, it's a little bit complicated, uh, but nonetheless, I'm sure there are many entomologists and uh, others that are still perplexed a little bit by the problem but but working on it and trying to figure out exactly why 
the bugs go for one thing rather than another, Dave. All right. Well, the bugs uh, need food too, I guess. <laughs> but uh, between <laughs> well, the bugs, yeah, the bugs and the bunnies and the deer, you got a lot of competition for your food out there. Well, you do, and like I. Uh, Tell people everyone's out there just trying to make a living, trying to figure it out and uh, get a meal on the table. And uh, I guess you, I guess you have to look at it that way. But uh, we want to come on top, out on top on most of these things. Right. These days. All right. Let's take another break. Uh, Nine forty-seven here at KDAL. We'll be right back uh, with the Bob Olin Show. And we are back more of the Bob Olin Show here on a Tuesday morning. Uh, Bob, I'm guessing the. Uh, crops are coming in at the farmers markets a little more quickly now than they were earlier. Yeah, you know, when we hit uh, mid-July, things really <laughs> begin to happen. So there are a lot of crops coming in now. Earlier in the season, of course, we've got a lot of greens that come and, and like that early season weather. But now we're getting some of the warm season squash, so our warm season crops. We talked about uh, some of the squash. Now, summer squash are going to be different than the winter squash. And our previous caller had a real interesting collection of squash. Most people uh, don't have all those varieties. She's evidently a real squash fan. Uh, but uh, summer squash are going to be coming in. They're in right now. These are the zucchinis. And it's so funny how at one time zucchini, I remember when they were first introduced and no one knew what they were. They were kind of unique. And uh, then, of course, they uh, they gained a lot of public- uh, popularity. And now, of course, there are a lot of zucchini jokes about leaving some of those big old zucchini on the neighbors don't get along with, leave them as a gift on their doorsteps. I've heard a lot, a lot of zucchini jokes over the years now. Yeah, how do we get rid of all yeah, these zucchinis? <laughs> how do we get rid of them all? Well, we're going to start by uh, using as many as we can. They make a, they are a great, uh, great crop, uh, particularly when they're young and tender. You know, one of my favorite meals is just uh, just slicing a, a gold rush or a golden uh, zucchini along with uh, an elite or an aristocrat, one of the green zucchinis. Uh, when they're fine, just slice them up. They're about cucumber size, maybe a little bit of cooking oil if you like a little pepperoni in there or a little bit of uh, ground meat if you like. And uh, it makes a real cheap, uh, inexpensive meal and very nutritious as well. Uh, spiralizing, everybody now talking about spiralizing these nice small zucchini. I uh, have not done that, but I've sure heard a lot of folks who have, and using, of course, the uh, the spirals uh, in the place of pasta. So that's a big deal, particularly now that people are interested in gluten-free. So where we used to take so much fun out of zucchinis, uh, they're a great crop. They're oftentimes first in among the among the squash. But we got other summer squash, and just for general information, the big difference between summer and winter, of course, is the time when they mature. The summers come in early. But the summers all have edible skins, and for the most part, uh, winter squash do not. Uh, our caller talked about uh, delicatas. Now, delicata is a real nice, classified as a winter squash. It comes a little bit later. It's stored a little bit better. But it's one of the few winter squash where you can actually eat the entire squash. They're really nice, nice squash, the delicatas. I think that name was appropriate for being delicious or one thing or another. Very thin skin, so you... And thin amount of flesh, too. They're not going to have real deep flesh like some of the butternuts and buttercups and so forth. There's a thin flesh, maybe a quarter of an inch deep, very nice and sweet, but you can actually eat the entire squash. That's one of the few winter squash where we eat the entire, uh, entire with these are fruit, the entire fruit. Uh, the summer squash, uh, we always just cut them up and eat the skin, and there's going to be so many uh, new ones uh, that are coming along. Uh, a lot of the scallops, 
squash, our summer squash that are going to be in very, very soon. So you're right, Dave. A lot of crops are beginning to come in uh, very quickly. A little early for tomatoes yet. Sorry, folks, but uh, they'll be coming. But certainly uh, broccoli, cabbage, all of the leafy greens, all the salad greens. The onion crop looks really, really good this year as well. Um, got off to a pretty good uh, season for them if they had the moisture they needed. So there are uh, many, many crops in Blue Farmer's Market, of course, the original market where uh, you get to talk to the grower. These aren't people that are just flipping that are bringing product in from someplace else. They grew it themselves, and uh, uh, they're, uh, you know that that's local product there. You can actually talk to the, the person that grew it. So that's the Duluth Farmer's Market. That's 14th Avenue, East and 3rd Street, 2 to 5 uh, tomorrow afternoon, Wednesday afternoons, and then on Saturday uh, from 8 until noon, and uh, don't get discouraged if, if the tables aren't quite as full as you'd expect in August. They're filling up, and uh, every week it'll be better. And, of course, we have our Six Center Market on Thursday, and we've got the Superior Farmer's Market. And I think uh, local produce, eating more produce, uh, high-quality produce, as we all age a little bit. And, uh, you know, we see some of the evidence of uh, not taking the best of care of ourselves. I think it's more important than ever that... Uh, you do what you can for your health, and part of that is a good, uh, healthy diet that certainly is can be balanced, but rich in, in vegetables is uh, always good advice and can be delicious as well if you take a little time with the preparation side, Dave. Yeah, that's the key, I guess, is uh, how you prepare this stuff to eat. It makes a big difference. You were talking about spiralizing your uh, your zucchini. How spiralizing do you go? the zucchini. How do you do that? Yes. Special tool is needed, I would guess. Yes, uh, that I guess is readily available is what people <laughs> tell me at uh, a lot of the big box outlets. I've got to get one this year, but it's been around for quite a while. I'm glad wow. that there's not uh, myself that was unaware of uh, that technique, but for several years now people have been talking about spiralizing. And, you know, they're looking for a carb substitute. Of course, pasta is uh, uh, pretty intense in carbs, and uh, people that are... Concerned about diabetes, of course, have to watch that. And those that perhaps should be a little bit more concerned, uh, they're substituting the spiralized zucchini, uh, where you just get these nice spirals uh, that come off from this device, not very expensive to purchase. And uh, then you can put your sauce and and whatnot on top of that, so it's kind of a nice uh, substitute. Uh, People really uh, ran rave about that, so there's mm-hmm. something we're both going to have to try, uh, Dave. <laughs> well, between that and the riced uh, cauliflower and riced, uh, I guess, uh, uh, broccoli is something yeah. to try as well. Yeah, with riced cauliflower, that's become extremely popular. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about the, the insect issues that people have, summer crops of cauliflower are really struggle with the issues of uh, our imported cabbage worm and our loopers. So these butterflies that you see, yellow butterflies, white butterflies, during the uh, during the summer crop, uh, they can be a real challenge. I mentioned uh, netting for some of the beetles. I think that, again, uh, netting is a good option for excluding a lot of these adults that want to lay their eggs there. In the case of uh, the looper and the cabbage, imported cabbage worm, we do have a good biological uh, BT, which is a naturally soil-borne bacteria, Bacillus thuringiensis, and I'll use a name brand here because uh, most people aren't going to spin the container around and look for that, but uh, Dipel is the way it's sold uh, typically in this area, D-I-P-E-L, and it's a biological, no waiting period. Uh, it's very specific for these these caterpillars are the larvae that do all the damage on the coal, fam- coal crop family. That would be cabbage, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower. 
got to do something to control them during the summer. Now, the nice thing, uh, you could also net those to keep the, the adult butterfly out, a fine, fine net. We've got a product called Remay, which is a spun polyester blanket. And there you're cutting down a little bit of sunlight, which impacts the growth and the yield of the crop. So you want a, a real light grade. If you're ordering something like that online, get a light grade for insect protection. Heavy, heavy grades are useful for frost protection. They block out too much light. But the whole idea is to exclude the adult so they can't lay eggs. And from the eggs, you get the larvae that does all the damage. Another option, of course, is to, is to just plant on a fall crop. And then, you know, these insects go through cycles and uh, we rarely have a problem as we move through the season uh, and the temperatures typically cool down with some of these insects. July is the peak, and that's why we're seeing that ourselves and the other callers have indicated the same thing. Uh, as we move through the season, uh, some of this pressure does begin to naturally get eliminated. So fall crops for cabbage and that whole cabbage family are really the best. And uh, take a little longer to grow out. The quality can be very good. They are cool season crops naturally, so they adjust very nicely. But you kind of have to get some transplants, mm-hmm. and there still are nurseries out there and greenhouses where you can still get transplants. Put them in the ground right now. That You're still going to have time to get these crops in the fall. And then you sidestep all of the issues with those insects because they've completed their life cycle, and you're not going to have uh, insect pressure in the fall. So there, Bob, we got to run, but... We'll catch you again next week. Absolutely. David, right. see you out there at the Duluth Farmer's Market here. <laughs> Sounds good. Bob Olin, the Bob Olin Show resumes next Tuesday, same time, right here on KDAL.